This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. When it comes to writing, I want to write things because I believe them, because they matter to me, because they will help somebody. Yeah. And, and I don't want to move into the how do, how do I sell more of this yeah. as opposed to how do I make this better? Hey everybody, welcome to The Calling. I'm your host, Richard Clark, the manage, online managing editor of Christianity Today. I'm here with uh, Morgan Lee, host of our other podcast, Quick to Listen. Hey Richard. Hey Morgan. So today on the podcast, I'm have, I'm talking to uh, Barnabas Piper. Do you know who that is? I actually interviewed Barnabas back in the day. For what? His book, The Pastor's Kid, which okay. is about what it's yeah. like to be the son of John Piper. Interesting book. A tell-all. A tell-all, right. <laughs> Not quite. Not quite. Not really. He is also the author of Help My Unbelief, Why Doubt is Not the Enemy of Faith, and The Curious Christian, How Discovering Wonder Enriches Every Part of Life. And actually, Barnabas is also a podcast host in his own right. Yeah. So actually, The Curious Christian is his latest book. just came out this year, and it's really good. He also is the host of The Happy Rant. And he does a few podcasts for LifeWay Christian Resources, where he works. So at LifeWay, he's very interested in leadership issues. We talk a lot about that. It's a unique, special edition of our podcast today. You might have noticed already that it's extremely long. The reason for that is that it comes in two parts. The first one is our original interview, which we did last year and sometime. And before we released the podcast, he had written this blog post called When a Marriage Dies. That blog post was obviously like relevant to my interest. It was something that I was like, we've got this podcast with Barnabas. And I wanted to figure out like what it meant for the podcast, first of all, as an editor. When I saw it, it would be good to talk to Barnabas about the blog post because he talks about it. And also... Yeah, you weren't trying to get at it from a, from a gossipy perspective. Right. It was about trying to kind of... Figure understand. out if it changed anything, right? Because one of the things that struck me was because of the timing of that um, blog post, I realized like he was thinking about these things as we were... He was like working through uh, sort of a coming divorce or at least a seeming separation in his marriage as we were talking through in, in the first interview questions of calling. So I wanted to like figure out how much of that stuff he had worked through, how much of it was still in process. And then, um, you know, it's something that I've been through too, a divorce. And so I wanted to sort of talk to him on that level, just uh, as a human being, I thought it might be a good opportunity to sort of maybe talk that out. I don't know if destigmatize is the right word, but to, to sort of allow people to hear sort of the questions and concerns that come up when someone goes through this process. I think both Barnabas and I talk about this a little bit, but it's not something that is um, often brought to light in Christian circles because of the sort of awkwardness related to talking about people it. always speak about it in third person, not in first person. Before we end the podcast, it's just time to make everyone aware that the best way to support your podcast is by subscribing to Christianity Today magazine at orderct.com slash the calling. And I wanted to kind of just flag some stuff that's in our June issue 
Last week here at our offices and at nearby Wheaton, we had a science writers workshop. Mm. And I'm not sure how many people are aware that we've kind of like been doing more science coverage in the past couple years, thanks to this really awesome grant that we got. And part of that is actually training up people to better write about science. So we have some interesting science stuff that's actually a part of this issue. One of them is a story about how to listen better, which is really cool. And another one is about the age of accountability or kind of at what age we're trying to see that kids become morally culpable for their actions and looking at how research and the Bible kind of are confirming each other in many ways about those things. Yeah, that'll be good. So we set up a special page that'll allow you to get a discounted subscription plus a bonus download created especially for our podcast listeners. Uh, you just go to orderct.com slash the calling. That's orderct.com slash the calling. One other thing, if you want to support the podcast, is to rate and review on iTunes. We say this every week, but I wanted to put out a special call um, this week, which I'll probably continue to do. One thing I'd like people to do is sort of like write on their uh specific ways these interviews have like helped you or impacted your life. I, I feel like I hear about those instances from people and I just want people to like use those instances as motivations to rate and review the podcast. Well, I would even say on top of that, it's an awesome way to just encourage the church. Almost every single person, if not every person that we've had on the show is someone that is in the public eye in some way and, you know, carries a lot of scrutiny and has been criticized for different things that they've done before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously putting them on the show is a way for us to kind of encourage you guys through their stories. Um, but because they're being really vulnerable, oftentimes it, it means a lot for them to hear feedback too. Yeah. So if you review the show, just use the template. I really love this show. When I listen to when I listen to fill in the blank person, it really helped me because fill in the blank. If you do that, I'll read it on the show and uh, we'll we'll just like acknowledge it and thank you for it. And it'll be cool. So here's our interview with Barnabas Piper. You live in Nashville, but you used to live in Wheaton. I did. Which is where I live. I'm sorry. I mean, excellent. (laughs) But we know the same places. I'm going to ask you a really hard question. What was your favorite thing about Wheaton? Favorite thing about Wheaton? Wheaton, Illinois, for those who don't understand the context. Yeah, it's like the North Midwest Evangelical Mecca, or Visor of the Grand Rapids. Number of like Christian publishers there. <clears throat> yep. Christian That's the industry I things. was in. Wheaton College. Churches everywhere. It's a bit like a like a closeted Bible belt. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what was my favorite thing? Uh, well, the, the true but also boring answer is the friends that I made when I was at Wheaton College who stayed in the area. So they were the... They were the redemption of my several years in Wheaton, was the people who I had known from the time I was 18 up until I moved away. We had an interesting exper- experience the other day. We went to a Wheaton Improv. Um, uh-huh. the, through the college? Um, no, they started a new, like, oh, the downtown is Westside Improv, I think is what it's called. There is no West Wheaton. Yeah. Westside. They just... <laughs> I think it's what it's called. Anyway, it's really fun. It's a really great so improv. It's like comedy improv. Yeah. Okay. And they're it's good. Really, it's yeah, they're good. And um, one thing that they did that night was have the mayor tell stories, <laughs> which was real. Like they, it was as an introduction to them, them riffing, then them, mm-hmm. them rip, riffing off of it. And I feel like I learned so much about Wheaton. Okay, so an example of a story that the mayor could have told mm-hmm. is uh, 
a lot of people from Wheaton, for those who don't know, take the train into Chicago, the metro train. There's a stop right there. So it's a lot of, a lot of commuters into yeah. the city, especially those in the finance industry, which tells you a little bit about the economics of the town. Yeah. But a friend of mine who he lived 15, 20 minutes away, he would drive into Wheaton and park on one of the streets in the neighborhood mm-hmm. and then walk three, four blocks to the train station and jump on. And he would always park in front of the same house. It was legal. There was, you know, there's no no parking signs. But the lady who uh, who lived there had just had a new porch built on the front of her house. <laughs> And she liked to sit out there and did not enjoy the view of his car. Mm-hmm. So she, she called City Hall repeatedly until they came and put up no parking signs in front of her house wow. so that her view would not be ruined by my college friend's car parked there. <laughs> that's amazing. That's, told- that's I mean, it's not Wheaton in a nutshell, but it's not atypical. <laughs> At the beginning of every podcast, we ask the same question. All right. Uh, is this, how would you define your calling? How would I define my calling? Uh, that is, uh, well, the short version is in process. I think, I think some people have a real clear sense of calling in terms of vocation and the thing they're supposed to do. I mean, I had a, a couple different roommates in college who both knew from early on that they were going to be doctors. They are now both doctors. Yeah. And that was the thing that they were going to do, devote their lives to. Uh, I did not know what I wanted to be when I grew up or, or kind of what God wanted to do with me, either vocationally or however that all played out between work and hobbies and ministry and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I've come to realize that my calling, I think, involves supporting the local church through writing, speaking, and trying to encourage pastors, but not being a pastor. Like, I don't feel called to be one, yeah. but I really enjoy sitting down with pastors and talking about their churches, their leadership, their families, yeah. uh, because of the some of the unique experiences I've had growing up in a pastor's home and and things like that. And then also, in, especially on the writing side, but even podcasting, is trying to help people see truth differently mm-hmm. or see truths they missed before. So the reaction, the response that I love from people is sort of the, huh, I never, I never thought of that before. Yeah. So if I can observe something they did and if I can explain it in a way they hadn't seen it before. And some of that comes from the fact that that was the response I always had reading especially C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton, um, more Lewis than Chesterton, just him writing about things that I've read about before, mm-hmm. but the way that he wrote it always made me go, huh, yeah. I never thought about that, never saw it that way before. So I think it's I, there, there's the supporting the local church side specifically in, in trying to help people in ministry, but then Christians at large uh, through just trying to help them see truth differently mm-hmm. so that it, it's clear, it makes more sense, it's more practical, whatever it is, you know, in their case, I don't have like an agenda in that. Sure. And it's, those two can go hand in hand, I would I, assume. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, because a lot of the ways that I connect with people in ministry is through through writing and through podcasting and things like that. And so they, they've they heard something and they, you know, they say, hey, can we grab lunch? Or, hey, we're going to be at the same conference. Can we talk? And those kinds of things. And so, I mean, I just had breakfast this morning mm-hmm. with a group of pastors in town mm-hmm. um, for, we're at the ERLC conference and and they were in town for that. And they just said, hey, can we, can we just have breakfast with you? And we just talked for an hour, hour and a half about leadership and, and curiosity and learning and vision and different things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, the, the when did you become aware of of these of this calling of these passions that you have? It's really probably been the last five to six years. Mm-hmm. So my mid I'm I'm 33 now. Um, when I was in my mid 20s, I went through 
sort of a spiritual crisis of sorts brought up brought upon I brought upon myself really. I mean, just sort of a there'd been some sin in my life that that God was working through, and through that process, through some of the counsel that other people gave me, I came to a place where I went from not having a real good sense of who I was, not having a real good sense of what God had made me to be. And not really having a a clear identity in Christ, you know that sense of I'm in Christ. I I am I, I'm defined by that, and that's a, an incredible freedom because you can then take risks. Like writing and publishing is a risk because you risk criticism, you risk nobody reading it. It's just you're putting a bit of yourself out there. And I had never written anything for publication prior to that, mm-hmm. and so that was that going through that process freed me up to begin to re- realize what I'm capable of what some of the gifts I have are, as well as um, just what I enjoy, yeah. sort of the freedom to pursue different things. And that was, and and then it sort of built because as people responded, I began to see, oh, these things that I do or that I offer are things that, that seem to connect with people, that seem to be a help. And so those are the things that I began to, to really focus in on more. So it seems like the ministry in general has been kind of a part of the family business for a while. Yeah, it, it has. And I think, uh, I think my... So my grandfather's father was also in ministry. So I think my dad is something like third or fourth generation uh-huh. in ministry yeah. in some capacity. So yeah, it's it's been in the family a long time. So that's cool. Also a lot of pressure. Yeah, it's funny. Like I don't... The pressure that I... I mean, I felt it purely from the generation above the the grandparent, the great-grandparent. That was that was just sort of something I just kind of looked back on and was like, oh, that's cool. Like I mm-hmm. didn't really think anything of it. Yeah. And I never felt pressure from my dad. It was more pressure from the outside because one of the classic questions that pastors' kids get asked is, "Oh, are you going to be a pastor like your dad?" At least, <laughs> at least, pastors' sons get this. Yeah. We still tend to draw along those gender lines. I don't think pastors' daughters get asked that the same way. But yeah, um, yeah so it was, it was pretty regular. Oh, are you thinking about going into ministry like your dad? I mean, all the way up into college, even out of college, like, oh, I mean, I still get asked that. Oh, you, what do you, what do you think about ministry? I'm like, I'm 33 and have a job. Like, I, <laughs> I do stuff. I yeah. No, I'm not going into the pastorate. Yeah. How did you um, navigate those questions, especially as they were coming when you were sort of learning yourself? Right. Uh, what you're, less, what you're calling less on. graciously to more graciously. Yeah. I think I was, I resented, I resented them more when I was younger, mm-hmm. and because it. You know the teenage angst and that that sort of adolescent years. You don't want to be pigeonholed. You don't want to be to- you don't want to be told anything. And yeah. so, kind of pushing back on them then. And I was never the super rebellious pastor's kid type, um, but I definitely tried to do little things and have a certain attitude where I would distance myself mm. from from ministry and from my you know that so that so that I could be my own person. And and again, I was I was trying not to be something instead of being confident in who I was. And that's when you're trying not to be a thing, you you're kind of a tool yeah. usually yeah. because you're just sort of reactive. <laughs> yeah. And so that was me all the way up into my 20s. Um there are probably people who would still say that's me to a degree, but uh I do tend to be somewhat contrarian. Yeah. Not for the sake of like arrogance and calling people wrong, but just I think it it's sort of the ugly underbelly of what I was talking about earlier, where I try to see things, see truth differently. Mm. So always kind of looking for the different angle. And oftentimes that can be contrarian if I don't, you know, if I'm, if I'm not very gracious about it, because instead of just kind of going along with somebody's, what somebody says, I'll be like, yeah, but what about this? So I'm sort of the well actually guy yeah. if I'm not careful and nobody likes that guy. So I have to, to rein that in. But I would say as I, as I kind of grew into a sense of, 
this is what it means to be Barnabas Piper instead of just to be John Piper's son, or what it means to to do your writing and your ministry instead of sort of be marked by your father's ministry. It's become something where I've been able to to learn to appreciate what he does more. Yeah. Uh, but also find some distance from it. So, and, you know, so if somebody comes up to me now and is, you know, oh, I love your father's ministry. And like, they just, all they talk about is him. I don't have any resentment for that. He simply had an effect on them. And so I can respond and say, you know, thank you. You know, thanks for telling me I'll, you know, I'll try to remember to tell him next time I see him. And I do periodically mm-hmm. remember. Um, at least <laughs> to remember yeah. to tell him, yeah. I don't promise anybody anything. Oh, by the way, 47 people told me yesterday to I tell know. you that. They appreciate Dad, it. we're up to 32. I just, I just text, <laughs> no, I just text him a number, 27. That's <laughs> like his version of Twitter favorites or That's something. Right, exactly. He probably doesn't, he doesn't pay attention um, to his Twitter, I'm sure. But yeah, so it's, it's something where I think, I still feel the pressure sometimes where, you know, feel a little bit, a little bit stuck because occasionally I'll tweet things. You know, I'm, I, have a sarca- I have a sarcastic sense of humor <laughs> and I tweet about anything I want to, mm-hmm. you know, I just, mm-hmm. and so people will respond to things and make it, you know, what would your dad think of that tweet? And, you know, in those moments, <laughs> I don't think very nice thoughts about those people. Right. And, and just, <laughs> why would, I don't know what compels them to do it. It's I don't, so weird to me. It's the weirdest. But I think, I think it is, it's indicative of the incredible formation impact he's had on people yeah there's a lot of people who look at him as like their spiritual father Mm -hmm. and so they feel like they need to defend him even though i'm part of the actual family like no i'm actually part of the nuclear piper family and uh you don't get to defend my dad to me that's not how this works especially (laughs) when i'm not tweeting about him i'm tweeting about you know football or donald trump or something and somebody's like what would your dad think like i don't know ask him he's on twitter yeah yeah i'm wondering like the back to the contrarian thing i'm wondering it's it's more like you said it's broader right bigger than yeah. contrary and it's seeking out these other things and the fact the sort of fact is about your dad is that a lot of people read him as the the word <laughs> like yeah. they read him as an authority yeah john piper's interpretation of scripture can easily equate to scripture is correct right yeah. and that was me at a given time right yeah. like even i went and certainly in our in like the Reformed tribe and the Reformed baptist tribe yeah. it's it's a temptation that we have and you would have experienced that firsthand Mm -hmm. and i think you like i'm wondering if that caused you to sort of like uh veer towards this uh yeah actually but but actually thing as a sort of survival mechanism i think i think it did uh on the on the negative side it was a lot of that where it was sort of the it was that reactive against on the positive side in terms of how to use those that same set of skills but Mm -hmm. use it to find true things instead of just contradicting other people's thoughts Part of the reason my dad is the expositor that he is mm-hmm. and uh, is the thinker that he is, whether or not you agree with him, is because he tears apart ideas and he tears apart texts. I mean, he just dismantles them to figure out what their components are, hmm. at least as well as he can interpret it. Hmm. And so conversations with him growing up just sort of modeled the the observation and the, you know, I would say something and he just wouldn't take it at face value (laughs) because that's not what that word means. Because when you said this, did you mean this? And, and so there's this sense of, of being precise in how you communicate and, and beginning to see things that other people will just sort of take at face value. And so that was the positive side of it. The negative side, yeah, would definitely be when, when people, when there's the pressure from the outside to, to just fall into lockstep with him, see things the same way. And there is sort of that, well, you know, well, actually he is a, 
a uh, he's a fallible human being who's not right about everything, and I we don't agree on everything. And yeah. as I've <clears throat> we were just having this conversation before we started that it's just been the last few years that I have learned, hopefully as part of maturity, to to not pick fights with my parents. Yeah. You know, like yeah. they may not be right about everything, we may not agree on everything, um, but that relationship will be a whole lot better yeah. if I don't be the contrarian to them because I, you know, I'm probably not going to change their mind and all it does is cause friction. Right. Yeah. There's, um, y- your relationship with your dad is like a weird, um, bizarre version of my relationship with my dad because my dad was, a uh, not a Christian mm-hmm. at all. And he had worries about my Christian faith, huh, Yeah. but he also like made it a point to sort of sit me down and tell tell me what he was thinking about where I was going. So when huh. I was wanted to go into ministry, yeah. he was like, you just need to m- make sure that you're, uh, I forget what it was. Like you're able to take care of yourself. Right. You know, in his mind it's like, that's not the way you, meaning of financially. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then I remember I was reading a lot of left behind and I was really into it. And he was like, I just want you to understand that you're not, you can't count on, Jesus to come back, which is a very real perceptive bit of feedback because I hated school and yeah. I was putting off homework and I was like really into it at the, that given so point. So you were you were at the point where you were like the rapture is going to save me from my inconvenient life. I feel like subconsciously I knew yeah. that I thought that. Yeah, I was hoping. So he was trying that. to kind of shake you free of that yeah. that yeah. perspective. Okay, definitely. And there are a lot of moments like that where he would sort of say his viewpoint mm-hmm. into my life. A little bit uh, of pushback, yeah, and then he would let me go, right? Which is which is interesting, and I think it I've, it seems like that's what's happening in your life with your relationship with your dad. Yeah, you co you coexist <laughs> as different human beings, right? Yes, and and he, you know, I'm the fourth child, and so I'll also give my parents credit for learning how to be better parents as they went along. I mean, mm. I think that's I think that should be every parent's goal, whether you have one child or a whole bunch is to continually learn to get better. And and so at 70, my dad is a better dad than he was at 35 or 45 or 55 because he's still trying, still learning, still, you know, and then also figuring out how to interact differently with each child and Yeah. Um and so yeah, that that sense of sort of good conversation but also healthy distance um has has been the last few years I think have been healthier in our relationship than than at any point prior mm-hmm. and uh and that's a big piece of it because he's if he sees me saying or doing something that he finds questionable mm-hmm. you know whether it's you know and which doesn't happen terribly often he doesn't meddle in my business much um he's not he's not afraid to you know call and say hey can we talk about this real quick you mm-hmm. know I saw you wrote this or whatever but he will also call and say hey I read this piece and I loved it and yeah. uh and so there's and that that's something we worked through because he he used to critique my work as a writer because mm-hmm. he's he's obviously a writer has a very keen sense of what sentences should look like and how paragraphs should be. so he would read a piece and compliment and then say but I thought it would be stronger if yeah yeah and I just had to tell him like I don't want you as an editor like, <laughs> yeah. you can tell me if you yeah. like stuff but I don't want you as an editor yeah and he he listened and he yeah. understood and so that's th- those kinds of ongoing progressing conversations in our relationship and how we interact have been have put us, I think, in a as healthy a spot as we have been at any point in my life. So mm-hmm. I think that's I'm I'm thankful for that. Yeah. You have a pododcast called the Happy Rant Podcast. I do. He doesn't listen to that one or he might have more things to criticize. <laughs> it feels to me like that is an so of a of a lot of people we've interviewed, I feel like you are one of the most like um I don't know how to put this. I'm waiting for what's next. 
under pressure or under a <laughs> microscope type. I don't uh, know who all, I don't know who all you've interviewed, but I, I, there's some of that there for sure. I'm sure that I'm forgetting someone, but I'm trying to think. I mean, so I interviewed Shauna Nyquist. Right. She has a very similar story. That's funny. I was about to bring her name up. And she's sitting over there going, "Hey, what about me?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she, we, we talked a little bit about this yeah. actually. Um, but for you, like the the Happy Rant podcast is interesting because it feels like this uh, escape valve, like a little bit, a yes. way for you to get away with things that you yeah. wouldn't be able to otherwise, and especially because podcasts, like who listens to a podcast to troll it? No one does that. <laughs> No one. Well, yeah. very few people do. Anyway. Well, it's yeah. It's hard to devote forty five minutes of your life to something just because you hate it. Yeah, I know. That's. I mean, exactly. people people hate watch like The Bachelor and stuff, but I think yeah. they actually love it. They just they love to hate it. But like, if you're actually gonna troll, you don't have forty five minutes. You're right. not gonna do that. So there's not a lot of watchdog bloggers no. listening to Happy Rant. No, and... which means we can talk freely about them. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. by name. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it's it is a it is a release valve. Um. In a, in the sense of not in the sense of like venting because mm-hmm. that I I think venting is generally not very helpful mm-hmm. usually productive things aren't said but just in the sense of being able to kind of find that safe place of I can still hold generally to the the theology and the orthodoxy of my parents my family the reformed tradition I came out of but I can distance myself enough I think I hope to have some critique of it. Mm-hmm. And it's not a critiquing podcast in the serious sense. It, we're, it's much more sarcastic and lighthearted than that and more poking fun at things. Yeah. But but the, the goofy way that people respond to things online, you know, how, how reformed people always, you know, the Christian way to respond to X. Good night. Do we need another one of those? And seeing the gospel in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, we can we can ruin a born movie by turning it <laughs> by turning it into a by turning it into a you know a gospel metaphor, mm-hmm. um, and those kinds of things. So we you know we make fun of that stuff. So yeah, but it's so it allows me to sort of f- keep a foot in both worlds where I can say I affirm these things theologically. I'm, yeah. I'm on this side, but also like yeah, I'm not afraid to to take a sarcastic swing at the silliness of certain camps in the in the church world, especially ones that I'm close to. You know, mm-hmm. I don't take as many shots at, like, I'm not taking shots at camps I don't know anything about. I'm not trying to separate people. I'm much more just trying to be like, it's like brothers picking on brothers kind of thing. Like, I know you so well mm-hmm. that I can just poke fun at you. Yeah. Is there a sense in which that podcast plays into what your calling is? It, I think so. I mean, I, I wouldn't do it if I thought it was a waste of time, and I don't mm-hmm. just do it for self-indulgent reasons. Hmm. Um, I... It's not just a sort of a, a fun outlet, but something where I think that they're one of the truths that I would love for Christian people to get on board with is the freedom to have fun. Yeah. You know, and that's a podcast where we 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 talk about some serious things, but it's I'd say it's probably 60, 40, 70, 30 on the lighthearted side. Mm-hmm. You know, riffing on one of the one of the guys who's on there is a is a church planter who's has sort of a hipster look about him. So like hipster stuff comes up all the time and we make fun yeah. of it. And it's just sort of a running gag. And uh but that's stuff that I look at and I'm just like, those those are things that I wish Christians felt more free to do. There's a sense of amongst again certain camps of of sort of guilt about laughter and poking fun and like if you if you are too happy for too long before you kind of get serious again mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you might have stepped out of bounds yeah and so i think setting that bar and just saying no you can get together with your friends and transition real freely from making fun of their silly hipster genes to talking about politics to talking about faith to talking about I mean, laughing about things i mean 
this is all part of life and you should be free to do any of it. Mm-hmm. So it, it is an exact exemplification of those things. And if I didn't think it was doing anyone any good, I'd, I'd quit doing it. Yeah. What has been in the course of wor- working out your calling and doing this work, what's been the biggest struggle that you've had? That's a good question. I think the biggest struggle has been comparison. Comparison. So, you know, starting with comparison to where I came from. So comparison to my dad and those kinds of things. And I've never worried about writing like him, partly Mm -hmm. because I'm just, I don't even have the capacity to write like him, either in volume or uh, style. Yeah. But comparison in terms of what kind of the what will he think? What what will his people think? That (laughs) that sort of comparison. But then also, you know, we live in in a world where platform building is, it's a, like it is a thing and it's something that it's a thing that if you're a podcaster or a writer, or you're on social media, like those are things that you need to quote unquote need to be heavily focused on. And so comparing my reach to other people's comparing my, you know, if I, if I release a book, uh, what am I doing to get it out there and sort of comparing successes with other people instead of simply saying, God has given me a set of abilities. He's given me a certain amount of reach. And if he wants the reach to increase, the reach will increase because yeah. those things can happen very naturally without us pulling levers and building a platform. Yeah. And so that kind of comparison is something that I, I'd say I battle it almost daily because it's, it is, it's always kind of nagging at the edges to say, how are you doing compared to, mm-hmm. compared to yesterday, compared to somebody else? You know, how's your podcast compared to somebody else's uh, in terms of numbers uh, book sales, all of those things are things that they take the soul out of a calling like mine, because mine needs to be one of relating to people and and observing truth and those kinds of things, as opposed to it's not it's not about numbers in yeah. themselves. Yeah, you also do a uh, podcast called Five Leadership Questions, mm-hmm. where you talk about church leadership, and yes. your job has like everything to do with local church leadership. Right. Uh, what would you say is like the value uh, that is most important right now or most missed hmm. Hmm. in either one of those pick one for local churches? What's the thing that you feel like local churches need to value the most right oh, now? Man, man, that's a hard question to answer because I feel like if I say one, I'm going to immediately think of something else and wonder if that was the right answer instead. <laughs> um, you're, you're, putting, you're putting a pastor's kid on the spot and being like, you have to find the right answer. This is... You can find. I'm can getting the shakes. Say the top three. <laughs> I think I mean, local church as a whole. I think um, I wish more local churches asked why. Why do we do this? Mm-hmm. Because so many things that are done in the church and are done for they might have a reason, but you need to ask why about the reason. Mm-hmm. You know, you know the worst reason to do things is because we've always done it this way. Which yeah. there are churches that that is their driving force. But then there are others who have, you know, we're doing this to get more people to attend. We're trying to build growth. We're doing, and and that can be a good thing. But again, why do you want to get more people there? What do you do with them when they're there? Mm. So that why question needs to just drive down so that you have this core mission of we want to see people transform to be like Christ. Mm. And anything we do needs to be a piece of that that process, yeah. that that puzzle. It needs to be part of that picture. So student ministry, small group ministry, Sunday morning worship, whatever it is. But the why question doesn't get asked. And so there's a lot of things that get done and because because they're they're handled in isolation. So hey, we're gonna do a huge dodgeball tournament. Just, you know, we're gonna get get teenagers here, we're gonna do a big dodgeball tournament. Just why? And 
you know, then you start to get into like, is this the way to handle our resources and those kinds of questions. So that why question is one that I think <clears throat> if you're persistent in asking it, you, you, pers- you, you, you don't just settle for the first answer and go, mm. okay, well, that sounds all right. You, you will get to the heart of the mission a little bit more. You'll also, the other thing it can do is it can bring ministries of the churches together more effectively. Cause if they're all asking why it's going to bring the disparate efforts of different areas kind of closer to the same page where they are all pursuing the same, same vision, same heart, same passion, instead of this one doing, uh, dodgeball tournaments and that one doing a cookout and this one doing a ladies tea. And like, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. And that's not what I'm saying, but there needs to be a, a real dramatic why that is answered behind all those Mm -hmm. in your, uh, your life, you've been exposed to all sorts of like church leadership structures. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, certainly in your job, you probably have a, a big picture viewpoint right. of all sorts of things. I'm curious if you have, if you have a preference, if the, if you <clears throat> see one type of church leadership yeah. structure that works better than others or like a common element yeah. that, that uh, helps a church to be more mm-hmm. healthy. Uh it's easier to point out church leadership structures that don't work, uh-huh. and usually they're incredibly top-heavy. Yeah. So, uh, where where power is concentrated with a small number of people. Okay. Um, now that doesn't mean that you don't have you know a small number of people with the greatest leadership influence, but in mm-hmm. terms of decision-making power, those can turn tyrannical quickly. I think those tend to be the weakest, but that's not what you asked. You asked which one's most effective. I think church polity, the effectiveness of church polity, is determined by the character of the people involved. Yeah. The if you have godly people, the most dysfunctional church polity can still work because they are pursuing the things of God. Mm-hmm. I've been at a congregational church where it was complete congregational vote on everything, and the staff was there to kind of run the day-to-day ministries but not not make the big decisions. And I yeah. think that's a, a pretty dysfunctional model. Yeah. But it worked in large part because the godliness of the people who are influencing the people, it, the influencing the congregation, and then— the church as a whole was a church that wanted to pursue honoring the Lord. Yeah. I've been in a Presbyterian church and I've been in a Southern Baptist church and, you know, decidedly different ones. Some are healthy, some are not. And it really depends on the character of the people. Hmm. And I think, I think that's what it boils down to. I think any, I think every church should have a governing body. Mm-hmm. So a group of people making decisions together because mm-hmm. one of us is not smarter than all of us. So and as opposed to the pastor as the yeah, captain. Right. Yeah. yeah the, the CEO model. If right. You will. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that tends to be better. I think a sense of a system of checks and balances. So power doesn't get so concentrated on one side because, yeah. Yeah. um, power struggles and churches destroy churches. Yeah. It's, it gets ugly fast. Yeah. Um, and so, but again, those will all work if people are marked by the fruits of the spirit. You know, if if a church leadership is marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and right. self control, you don't even I mean, the church polity is is of little relevance. Yeah, it's interesting. The negative example you started with is interesting to me because I remember this is maybe I don't know weird to bring up, but the, I remember uh, getting divorced. And wanting to get remarried, mm-hmm. talking to a number of people, reading John Piper's viewpoint yeah. on it, and then reading his elders' decision on it, which yeah. was those were markedly different. So yeah. John Piper had a viewpoint as the pastor of the church, yeah. and the church was very clear: no, that's the pastor's viewpoint. 
you can hear that wisdom if you mm-hmm. want. But then also the church has a viewpoint, yeah. which is a lot more open-handed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was um, encouraging, weirdly encouraging yeah. to me, you know, to know that like I, and I talked to my pastor about it and my elders and they all had viewpoints all over the place. But the thing that was encouraging to me was just this willingness to, to have the humility mm-hmm. to allow your opinion not to be the be all end all right. on that thing. And this and and the reason that that worked in my dad's church, and I can think of two or three other instances where similar kinds of things happens, either a theological view. There was one about um, allowing membership for people who, uh, so it's a Baptist church, mm-hmm. um, for people who have been baptized as infants, but oh, yeah. but could give essentially give a a a testimony to a testimony of faith. This wasn't baptism by regeneration, you know, regeneration through baptism, that kind of thing. Sure. Should they allow them to be members or not? Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, the board of elders and my dad took different stances on it and he was voted down. Hmm. Um, and then there was, there was an instance where he and the elders put forward a candidate for a position at the church. Some questions were raised about if he was a good fit and it wasn't anything moral, just the right fit for the church. And the congregation voted them down. Yeah. And I don't remember that happening but one time. Uh-huh. But I look at that and I'm like, that's a mark of health. Yeah. That's a mark of health when the elders are not cowed by the biggest voice. Yep. And the biggest voice is humble enough to say, you you people are, re- are elders for a reason. Yeah. And I should trust you right. in this. Right. And he does. Yeah. And he, my dad has spoken glowingly over the years of the, of I mean, the elder body is sort of a rotating cast of of men, sure. but uh, glowingly of them throughout mm-hmm. their quality, their trustworthiness, their character, how seriously they take every decision and how they pray through it and agonize over it. I mean, they don't make decisions flippantly. All of those things are things that that marked my view of what makes good church leadership. Yeah, and that's why I keep coming back to to godliness in it. Yeah, and yeah. It, and that and I can completely see why you would find that encouraging to say, you know, it's. Yeah, it's not just sort of this myopic viewpoint of like pastor gets his way or right. whatever. And especially when a church is influential, yeah, other churches follow suit. Yeah. It creates an atmosphere. And I felt like in that that particular year, it was a uh-huh. rough year, it was a raw year, right? Like so. a, just going from like uh, f- sort of finalizing a divorce that had been in the works for about four years and then uh, moving towards like, am I going to get remarried? Like I never thought that would happen. And yeah. suddenly it just kind of started to happen. And I think I... I think it would have been very different for me if the local church didn't feel the freedom to sort of allow for those things. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying I wouldn't accept what was right, you right. know, yeah, but yeah. whatever happened to be right. But I think it would have just been really hard to kind of struggle through that yeah. thing. And it's interesting to me, like, I think you talk about the importance of having people of character. I really believe that these systems we set up affect that. I think reality, like the idea, the, the, character I, the idea is to reproduce the right character. So, yeah. I mean, a system can't create character, but if there's a person of mm. character who's overseeing and, and influencing a system, it becomes a, a, a re, it's a, it's a productive system where okay. yeah. the people who are coming through a leadership development system. So the, the job that I have as, as part of Lifeway's leadership development team is to help churches with leadership development at every level. So, mm-hmm developing every person in the church to the in the role of service to the level of service that God has gifted and called them to. So we're not trying to turn everybody into pastors. We're not saying everybody should be, you know, 
we're not trying to create entrepreneurs or church planners or anything in particular. We're yeah. saying you were gifted to serve in some way. Mm -hmm. What is it? And, and how can your church help you develop in that to the best of your abilities in the way that God has, has made you to be? Yeah. And I think the systems are the thing that reproduce the character and the quality of, of leadership and culture. Right. So um, in your work, what's the deepest fear you have? In my work? Mm -hmm. Or in your calling, living out your calling? Like, what's the fear? That's, yeah, the reason I clarified is because my work, I feel like, is my work with Lifeway yeah. is a piece of what I do. But yes. You know, but then I write and podcast these other things. With a whole whole of it, what's the yeah. deepest fear you have? Being a sellout. Huh. What does that look like? Doing things for clicks and numbers and mm -hmm. adulation instead of because they matter. And so with, with Lifeway, that would look like making compromises in who we invite to speak in an event or, or how we market something simply to sell some more tickets. Yeah. Even if, even if we, I have a conviction nagging at me somewhere that we're not totally on board with this. I don't, I don't mm -hmm. totally agree with that. I think, you know, I want to be able to stand a hundred percent behind what we do qualitatively mission message wise. Yeah. I think writing wise, it's the same thing. Right. I know the formula to get clicks on a website. Mm -hmm. I know a formula, I should say. It's not the formula. Yeah, the Blazing Center is actually really good at producing. I'm not saying you're selling out, but I'm saying you guys know how to sell an article, how yeah. to frame an article. And that's one thing I've noticed. So you're for people who don't know, right. there's so a website called the Blazing, the Blazing Center. Center is where I do the majority of my online writing. Yeah. It's, it's a, a Stephen L. Trogi and his dad started it several years ago, and then I came on as sort of a co-writer site manager kind of thing a couple years ago and mm -hmm. um it, it's it is i could i could two or three times a week write a clickbaity sort of post mm -hmm. you know christian humor post or whatever it is and we could see our traffic um increase yeah and there's a time there's a place for that you know like like we were talking about there's a place for humor and things like that but when it comes to writing i want to write things because i believe them because they matter to me because they will help somebody yeah and and I don't want to move into the how do how do I sell more of this yeah. as opposed to how do I make this better? Mm -hmm. um, podcasting is a, you know that's a little different because it's hard to go viral as a podcast. Sure, you, you, we don't really drive how many people listen to these things. Right, we try. Yeah, and then, but then they choose to share with friends or not. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, so just that sellout, and and then also just compromises um, in terms of being afraid to stand up for certain things. So I, you know, I don't take on a lot of social issues and definitely not a lot of political issues publicly, but when it comes to things like race, that's something I feel very passionate about. Mm -hmm. And partly because of my background, I, you know, I grew up in an urban area, so mm -hmm. was exposed to a lot of different cultures early. My parents were very intentional in trying to teach me how to view people who were different than I was. And that was true for race. It was true for culture, true for uh, socioeconomic status, true for, I mean, mental capacity. We, yeah. had a, we had a special needs home in our neighborhood. And so you would see some very handicapped people walking around, you know, shouting at the sky and things like that. Yeah. And uh, I never got to laugh at them. Like that, huh. that was not a thing my parents were, were keen on. Like those are people created in the image of God, right. also marked by the fall of the world. And, and so, so race became a thing. And then when I was 12, we adopted my little sister and she's black. And, uh, so then my eyes began to be opened in some new ways to, oh, when you walk around with somebody who is black and you are white, people look at you differently. People respond differently, even extended family in some cases mm -hmm. and, and some different things. And then 
so on and so forth. And then it just the, the friendships I've developed. So that is something that I will address online as well as I know how. And I try to do it honestly from my perspective. So not as a, as a know-it-all, I don't have the solutions to the racial problems facing the church or mm-hmm. the culture. But again, I want to help people who, who come from my background. So middle-class white people for the most part, yeah. see things differently. Yeah. Can you begin to see what you haven't seen before about injustice, about systemic injustice, about white privilege. And I know that's a loaded phrase, but it's also a real thing. <laughs> um, and and can you begin to be humble enough to ask questions? Mm. Those kinds of things. A sellout either begins to write bombastic pieces to get clicks mm. or shies away from the topic altogether because it's not a safe place to live. Yeah. Or here's the tricky one. A sellout will also take on controversial issues because controversy sells. Mm-hmm. And so they they know that it will change how people view them and those kinds of things. So that's a con you know, that's all part of the sellout fear for me is I don't want to sell out to ill motives. Yeah. I want to take on something because I believe in it, because I'm passionate about it, because I want because I'm contributing something to help somebody. Yeah, the hard thing is it kind of looks very like what yeah. it looks like to sell out looks very close to what it looks like to not sell out. Right. Yeah. In, engagement in an issue can be a complete sellout move. Yeah. Or it can be a complete buy-in move. Like I'm all in because right. I care. Yeah. And they can look really similar. And how that plays out is usually the day to day. So am I thinking about, you know, if you write a post and you put it out there and you're like, ah, done, did my contribution to the the racial justice in America. Like, no, you didn't. You <laughs> you that was a drop in a bucket. Yeah. So what are you thinking about? What are you praying about? Who are you talking to? Those kinds of things are part of what kind of says, is this or is this not a sellout move? Yeah. Yeah. And I know that that's, that's a, I don't know if that's the right phrase to use, but I hope I've explained it in such a way that people understand. No. Yeah. That makes sense. So the last question we ask everybody on the podcast is if you could get into a time machine, go back in time, step out of it at any given point and say something to yourself, what would you tell him? I was an awful listener. Um, so I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I would have done any good. You wouldn't have listened to your older to, self? I probably would have thought my older self was an idiot because I was <laughs> sell out. I was yeah, I was pretty <laughs> you work a desk job. How can I listen to you? Mm-hmm. No, I I was pretty I was pretty arrogantly confident in myself for most of my growing up years. Um, I think the hardest thing about this for me is that my first thought was to say go back to the moment that you were doing something you regretted mm-hmm. and talk yourself out of it. Yeah. But some of the best things that God has worked out in my life came through the lessons learned by the consequences of things I regret. Right. So in retrospect, I needed that process. Yeah. But at the same time, I wish I hadn't done them. I think I think I probably would have tried to connect with myself sometime in college hmm. and have a conversation about identity in Christ instead of trying to be all these other things. Hmm. So instead of trying to move away from John Piper's son and like, oh, people know me as this, to just say, no, there's, and I I don't know that I could even come up with the right wording to convince 20-year-old me or 18-year-old me to to see this, but to say, you know, your life will be so much more fulfilled and peaceful in anything you do, fulfilled Mm -hmm. and peaceful, if you realize that what defines you and where you will find your freedom 
is is not in trying not to be somebody, hmm. but in resting in the fact that that Christ, you are Christ. Your identity is in Christ, and that's I mean that's a that is even that's even a hard thing to phrase a little bit, but just right. that you yourself, Barnabas Piper, are you can wake up in the morning and be confident about using the gifts that you have and being the person that you are because they came from Christ, because Christ did these things for you, and because uh, the, you know. That there's no shame, there's no embarrassment, there's no fear, there's no insecurity in Christ. And so at, at somewhere 18 to 21 years old, I would have wanted to have that conversation. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So that was the part one from my interview with Barnabas in 2016, and there was a few months in between that and then this next interview you'll hear with uh, Barnabas um, just about a month or so ago. I I decided to approach him again after reading his blog post in which he talks about his divorce. He talks about the fact of it and what it meant to him. So here's my second part of the interview with Barnabas. We, uh, We met up in Nashville, and I just wanted to talk it out kind of, uh, on equal footing, and uh, and here's what and here's what we talked about. So the last time we talked, I was actually listening to the recording of the interview, um, and it's weird because um, the the timing was it seems like you may have been going through a lot of the stuff that you've talked about. So mm-hmm. for listeners, and I think I'm going to say this on the podcast, but just in case right. for the listeners. Um, there was about three months after we recorded our interview, you, uh, you, you, uh, published a blog post called when a marriage dies, I think. Yeah. And you basically talked about the end of your marriage. So Mm -hmm. that was something that caught my eye for two reasons. One is because I just recorded a podcast with you (laughs) and we had not yet released it. So you wondered why I wasn't forthright. Right. So all the questions that come to your head with something like that, right. Not why you weren't forthright, but I I was like, I was, what do we do now with this interview as a, as a person releasing a podcast? But also, um, that was something I'd gone through Mm -hmm. and I thought reading it, I just related to that post in a lot of well, I'm sorry, and I'm glad at the same time. <laughs> right, exactly. So one of the things that caught my eye was the analogy you used at the beginning, the death analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the interview that we did, we talked quite a bit about my divorce, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the other thing that I was thinking when I was reading this is like, uh, we talked about divorce before he even announced this. Right. Um, and uh, one of the things that was interesting for me was I experienced my dad's death at the same moment. Oh wow! So my dad died earlier that week, mm-hmm. and I had already scheduled going to the courthouse with my wife later that week. And I remember very distinctly, like being told by my mom that you you have this date set. It might not have an, have another opportunity. You need to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is weird thing to think about some of the people listening to this i'm realizing are gonna are gonna feel weird about this because yeah if if you're not in it or haven't been through it or yeah. haven't walked with somebody through it it is weird so let's let's acknowledge the weirdness up front yeah. and say um this is the sort of thing that happens in not heaven yeah you know what i mean and not need, in god's kingdom and if there's one thing i've discovered is that it happens uh way more than i ever thought yeah. So yeah. so before I ever went through divorce, yeah. statistically I knew that it was a very common thing. I've peers who've been divorced. I have uh, just everybody knows all sorts of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I wrote the blog post, the responses that I got were similar to what you just said. Yeah. You know, there's a resonance with it. The number of people who just sort of came out of the woodwork who were like, "Oh, that's my story. That's my husband's story from a previous marriage." That's it's. So I hope that listeners for, for whom this feels weird will realize that it is, but it's also really normal. Yeah. Not okay normal, just like it's around you all the time normal. It's exactly like death. This is why I loved your analogy of death, right? Because it is a universal, so divorce is not universal, but it is often, it happens more than we'd like to admit. Yeah. And um, it is extremely unnatural. It never yeah. feels right. Yeah, and there's no such thing as a good one. Yeah. You know, like a neat or tidy one. Right. Even the neat and tidy ones are a massive loss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it's similar to death in that way. There's like the loss of somebody completely unexpectedly in a horrific accident. Mm-hmm. And then there's the peaceful death of an elderly person who has lived a full life. Yeah. One of those is not less of a loss than the other. Yeah. There's just a certain amount of preparation or a certain amount of anticipation. Yeah but the vacancy is still the vacancy. I think for the Christian, there is um, an assumption. There's sort of an assumption about what you wrote and about sort of like the Christian who is in ministry in some form Mm -hmm. or writing about ministry. And this was the case for me. So I was going to seminary at the time. There's a feeling of like, so maybe the better analogy, and I think you even use this analogy in the piece is like, it's a death that has been coming for a while. Yeah. And you've, you you sort of like try to stop it for a while. You want to make it work. You hope they can get better. You right. hope it can go on. And and and, the, and and you end up and you move from that point into just praying for a miracle. Right. So there's right. There, there's treatments. Yeah. yeah. There's therapy. Yeah. There's these there's these things you do mm-hmm. to try to stop the disease. Yeah. And then you get to the place where those are no longer working. Yeah. But you still believe that God can heal things and do miracles. Right. And then you get to the place where the the plug has to be pulled. Right. So when we talked originally in the interview, uh, where were you in that process? Um, were you at praying for a miracle or were you pulling the plug? Um, it was, it was tipping from one end to the other. Okay. Um, because the, at that point, paperwork had all been filed. And when that happened, so another thing about divorce is that when you hear about a divorce happening, what you don't hear about is, all the stuff that led up to it. And it's usually a a much longer process and decline before like finalization is the end of something that has probably been going on for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so when the paperwork was filed, when, when she said, you know, she was finished, um, that was the point where I began to, to figure out how to pull the plug. Mm -hmm. Um, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, um, and not in, again, not in a malicious way, not in like a, I'm going to peace out, but just in a, I have to figure out how to, how to 
transition with this loss and just live, live with the loss. Yeah. Um, so when we recorded, it was October and it was about halfway between when paperwork had been filed and when things would be finalized, mm -hmm. but on the heels of months and years of all of all of the stuff we just talked about and the, the trying and the therapy and the, the whatever efforts. Um, but I wasn't at a place where I was, um, fully out the door. I think I was probably two weeks from a, a week or two from even just moving out. Yeah. So we filed and then the transition process. And that's very different than a lot of people's circumstances. A lot of people are separated first. A lot of people are separated and back together and separated and back together. Yeah. Um, our, our sequence wasn't exactly like that. It was file. And then I started to, to transition out and okay. that was, we have two kids. Um, right. so, so that makes that sense. was, that was so the kids could stay with, stay in the same schools, have a certain level of at least logistical stability, yeah. um, in the midst of what would be mass chaos for them and, mm -hmm. and a big loss for them as well. So, Yeesh. yeah, so that's where, that's where I was or wasn't mentally. Right. So what was the role of your church in all of this? Um, challenging, uh, huh. because I, the church I was, I've switched churches since then. Okay. Um, I, I had been at a very large church, then moved to a smaller campus of the church. And then there was a leadership transition there. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was sort of the people I was most connected to at the church. I was sort of distant from just by, by virtue of transitions, not any sort of conflict issues, but there were two or three people who I'd been in a small group with mm -hmm. who were constants. So they were, they yeah. were guys and couples who I could, who I could go to regularly and, and have somebody to lean on. And then, um, had a small number of friends elsewhere who I could lean on, you know, believing friends who could speak truth and pray. And so I, I wasn't isolated. Yeah. Um, but there was no active, real active role of the church leadership in any of it. Sure. Um, and but those constants are so crucial, right? Yeah. Because I remember like, um, I had several like, um, community group leaders mm -hmm. that they kind of cycled out over time. Cause I lived yeah. in a very transient area. And I remember just the, uh, one after the other, they'd tell, they'd like be like, here's rich it's going through some stuff Th because mine happened over a period of several years. Right. So, um, I think there was about three or four guys mm -hmm. in sort of in charge of me in those moments. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, g genuinely like that saved my life. I mm -hmm. think like my yeah. spiritual life, I think it kept me in the church where elders were speaking into me, into my situation. It mm -hmm. was like, it was huge. Yeah. And part, part of the challenge for me was, and I'm sure you experienced some of this is that, um, there was a time when we were in church together mm -hmm. and then there was a time when only one of us was in church Yeah, and the other, <sighs> the other was just had sort of bailed on it and wasn't at a place where that was a thing that, that she could invest in. Uh, spirit, just didn't believe the same things, mm -hmm. which that yep. sounds like a thing you can work through. And I think in some ways it is, mm -hmm. but it's a, it is a profound division to have somebody who is saying, I believe in yeah. my need for the grace of God yeah, or else my life will fall apart and somebody else who just doesn't believe the same thing. Right. And so, and so for me, church had become a thing that I was very isolated in, mm -hmm. which is part of the reason why with the transitions, I just, in that church body, I was just 
I, I wasn't plugged in at all. Yeah. But I had these I had these core group of people who I had been plugged in with. And so outside of the church walls, outside of the church staff, yeah. and I'm, I want to be careful not to throw stones at the church staff because I don't think it was their fault. I don't right. look at them and go, why didn't they help me? Like, uh-huh. I was, it was just, it was a strange spot. Yeah. But those, those handful of friends were constants, were available, were, you know, grab breakfast, call them at 10 o'clock at night because I'm, my head's going to explode. And, and just have those people I could, I could lean on. And just concretely, I don't think I've personally ever felt more lonely than I, when I, than going to church after she stopped. Yeah. And I hated going to church. Yeah. It's the worst. Yeah. It's totally, totally. I don't, I don't know what to yeah. say it is. It's just bad. It's yeah. really bad. And it's, and it's, um, like it's important to do. I yes. knew I had to do it. Yeah. There were guys telling me, don't, don't stop going. I know it's terrible. Yeah. Well, and then, but, and then for somebody with children, there's, yeah. my kids were the only reason I went to church many of those Sundays. That's good. That's amazing. Because cause I never wanted them yeah. to, to stop thinking church was a valuable and important thing. Mm-hmm. And I never wanted them to see me think that. Mm-hmm. So I might have been totally posing, yeah. or maybe it was just doing the right thing for out of a sense of obligation. Right. Um, but at the same time, I, I did also have that just sort of that underlying conviction like i really ought to go yeah um did people it was, ask it was hard. what was going on like where was she no i wish they would have no one asked no that's interesting um i found myself having to just tell people the whole thing often may, and so maybe i don't wish maybe that sounds horrible that actually it, does it was it was kind of both horrible if if you're me it mm-hmm. was a combination of horrible and great right you know what I mean? Because yeah. I'm like, I like to tell people junk that makes them freak out. It's why I do this podcast. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, and, and for me, it was part of that was, I mean, there's a couple reasons for that. And it's it's kind of part of that is a reason I've found another church home because mm-hmm. the the community of that church was one that I had a hard time plugging into anyway. Mm. Um, and so to have the same people shake your hand every Sunday and, and never ask, yeah. I don't want to pin motives on them they you know they may have been being sort of southern polite yeah you know? it's totally a thing and it's just they're not prying they're not they don't right. want to pull me aside and be like tell me your story you know yeah. but but it was also really frustrating because it was just again it's just sort of a very it's a very isolating feeling mm-hmm. um and so to to get to a place I, th- there's another aspect which is i probably wasn't in a place where i was fully prepared to just sort of like lay it lay it on them mm-hmm. um once the divorce was final that has become a thing that i've i've become more comfortable just saying yeah you know so if somebody so if i go to church now and i've got my daughters with me and somebody asks i can tell them mm-hmm. you know or if i go without my daughters and they go oh where are your girls i can say they're with their mom and there's just sort of this it creates a context that people understand yeah at least from a distance yep um, and there's, it's just, it, it allows for entry into like real conversations mm-hmm. as opposed to tap dancing around and pretending like everything's okay. It also may be, I'm realizing now that I'm conflating so many years because <laughs> there was definitely like a long period of time where I was not talking to a lot of people right. except for like these core group of people that I, and I remember, um, at one point I was finally like pushed to start doing mm-hmm. doing like small group again because i had bailed out for mm-hmm. a very long time because church was so bad i was just like i'm gonna do the bare minimum here yeah because i'm in emergency mode and i can't i just can't go all the time and answer everybody's questions and the right. last thing i want to do is go 
to a small group where I got to present it as a prayer request. But then I don't know if you had this experience, but I had a moment where I just bleh, let it all fly in a community group. And um, what'd that feel like? It was to, to psychoanalyze you a little bit or something. It like was just, that is that was that freeing? Was super it ter- freeing was it terrifying? To me. It was terrifying at first, yeah, but super freeing in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it really changed my life and, and the way I think about relationships and mm-hmm. the way I think about church, yeah, if that makes sense. Because I uh, I don't really believe in a church where uh, that kind of thing doesn't happen, but but I will say this to further psychoanalyze myself. <laughs> Jennifer has pointed out my current wife, who actually <laughs> was in that small group. Okay. So she was in that small group praying for my marriage for a long period of time before we got married. <laughs> so I don't know what if that's beautiful or twisted. It depends on your perspective. Well, but it seems like things worked out. So we'll, <laughs> we'll definitely go, worked go out. Beautiful. What Jennifer told me a few uh, months ago was that the way that I feel close to people is by going through a terrible thing in their presence. And then I think of them as like friends. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, and and I would say for me, it's, it's maybe not going through a terrible thing, but it is discovering the freedom of not being judged. Yeah, that's good. So that, because I, that's huge. Maybe, maybe it's the background as a pastor's kid. Maybe it's the background just in conservative evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the fact that I still am in, in a position as, you know, a writer and, and where people, people's eyes are pointed at me in some capacity and I just have this pressure to sort of live up to something. Yeah. Like, uh, sort of this sometimes low grade, sometimes very pronounced. Right. So the freedom of knowing that somebody doesn't care what my last name is and won't judge me mm-hmm. is a thing that that's where it can tip into, Oh, this is like a, this is a genuine friendship. This is not a, this is not a thing to navigate. This is a thing to just be in. Yeah. But you do get judged. You have to know that. Yeah. No. So what do you do? You mean How by, do you, you cope? mean by those people or just by in other people? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. How do you cope with that? Because you decided to put yourself out there. Yeah. Um, um, and there's a handful of factors that went into that, and I wasn't 100 percent confident it was the right thing to do. Yeah. I was confident enough that I, I just thought I thought I would hit post and and send that send that post. Um, well, you explain it really well in the piece, which you say. Look, if it, part of what you say is if I didn't do it, it would have become a thing. Right. When, so, when, when you find out about the first time somebody finds out about anything, yeah. it's news to them, even if it's five years old. Mm-hmm. So um, if I had gotten divorced quietly yeah. um, and kept it in a tiny circle of friends, yeah. but then six or nine or 12 months later, people began to find out. And then one of these watch blog uh people (laughs) decides to turn it into a thing that can be spun as hiding something. Yeah. I don't have something I want to hide. There's a difference between privacy and secrecy. Yeah. Privacy are the things that you share with the right people in, in, uh, authenticity, but in that context only Mm -hmm. secrecy is things you just hide out of often out of shame. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to be ashamed Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to feel ashamed down the road and as somebody who wants to be able to have a voice to hopefully help people, mm-hmm. um, to speak truth, how can you speak truth that's helpful to somebody if they question whether or not they can trust you? Yeah. And so putting that out there, was it, was it, it was that. And then also just the fact that 
I hadn't seen anybody do that. I had nowhere to look. Yeah. I couldn't find anything helpful. I mean, there's people have written about being divorced, but usually it's very sort of memoirish and <laughs> and often navel gazy. And occasionally there's some pot shots at their ex. And I don't want to participate in any of those things. Mm-hmm. I wanted to put something out that was my heart and hopefully would connect with other people who have been or are going through the same thing. Um, and then also just give a window into this is what this experience has been like. Yeah. And I'll say this, that it, it, there was a, that was a tipping point for me. Your community group moment yeah. was me hitting send on the blog post in a lot of the same ways. That totally makes sense. Being able to, because, because I felt like from that point on, nobody could accuse me of anything. Yeah. Nobody could say, well, you, you hid this. I didn't. Yeah. You just didn't read it. Like yeah. those are two different things. Yeah. You felt right in that moment in terms of like that you had done, that you were relatively like, it wasn't like you were confessing a sin. Right. It was, yeah, it, and, and as I looked around, so a lot of, a lot of what I do just as a writer and is, is observing where the church is, how we're thinking and just sort of putting my finger on things that just don't seem quite right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there seems to be a lid on things that are not sinful Mm -hmm. that we are ashamed to be public with divorce being one of them. Mm -hmm. Divorce includes a lot of sin and it doesn't happen without sin. Right. But a person who is divorced is not necessarily in sin for being divorced. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's there's a billion reasons why. Yeah. Um, but we don't talk about it. It's yeah. scarlet lettery. Uh, right. And and so part of what I wanted to do was to to bring this into the light so that there's no more room for shame yeah. and maybe give people permission, myself included, to just be this. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to exist in my current role. In a, in a Christian organization, as a writer, as a podcaster, as a speaker, and just be, yeah. and not and not feel like I have to, ooh, I have to keep that away from people. Because that's that's disingenuous. That's not trustworthy. And it's, it's being ashamed about something that I don't think there ought to be shame in. Some people have um, taken the secrecy approach mm-hmm. to this, and some people take a very opposite approach, an extreme approach, of, which is just like, totally abandoning the whole structure. Right. Right. Which I think is a tempting thing to do. Did you feel that temptation? And by the whole structure, I mean the church, Christian organizations, everything that your life has stood for, for the most part. I mean, it Um, strikes me as I'm asking this, you've done this before, right? You've actually abandoned the whole structure before. So maybe that's that's, why you didn't this time. Yeah. I've, uh, I have learned a thing or two about abandoning the structure. Um, and it doesn't go well. Yeah. Um, because the structure is there for a reason. I don't mean that every Christian institution is part of God's plan. Mm-hmm. You know, Christian publishers are not, uh, you know, they, you don't find them in the New Testament. Um, <laughs> Wait, what? It's not how shocking, right? They do publish the New Testament. But, uh, but, they, but they are part of, they're part of my structure. Uh-huh. Um, and if there's anything I've learned through my idiocy over the years, it's that honesty and transparency always are are more fruitful than hiding yeah and abandoning the people and the structures that god has put in your life always leads to a disaster Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and so no i wasn't tempted to do that although i was afraid of navigating it yeah it's terrifying to navigate divorce in the church which is a really sad sentence to say yeah and it's terrifying to navigate it at a christian organization yeah although i have found just an insane amount of grace in both places. Yeah. People, kindness, grace, understanding, empathy, 
sympathy, just, and minimal judgment. Yeah. Um, the judgment has been from distant people who don't know me and mm-hmm. that's much easier to deal with because it doesn't really matter. Yeah. All of this is leading to a very big elephant in the room question, which we talked, we talked a little bit about in the previous conversation, which mm-hmm. is your dad's views on, for instance, divorce, right? Which it's not like, I mean, he's not saying what you're doing now is wrong, right? His, his issue is with remarriage, but it does sort of symbolize a hardcore stance right. on marriage. And the, the stance plays itself out as a persistent pursuit of the marriage that is no longer in existence. Yeah. So that, that would be his take on it. Right. So it's not just... So it does sh- apply to you right now. Yeah. It's not just that you shouldn't get remarried. Yeah. Um, or, well, let me couch this. <laughs> you should only get remarried if your ex is remarried mm. or has passed away. That okay. would that would be an accurate... If the possibility is over. Right. Yeah. And But if the possibility is still exists, mm-hmm. then that should be the aim of not necessarily pursuit, but at least prayers. Yeah. Um, and that is a, that's a sticking point for us. It's not a breaking point in our relationship. I've gotten well-versed at having different stances than my dad and, you know, loving him and him with me in spite of those things. Right. Um, but it does mean that there are some conversations that come to an end and we, we go our separate ways. Um, but that, that idea of praying for an ex is one that I had a conversation with another friend who, um, he had been through the same thing almost exactly the same story as mm-hmm. me married for the same amount of time, same issues leading to divorce was divorced maybe two years before I was. And he, we were talking during the process of, of the divorce and he, um, about, about what it looks like to move on, mm-hmm. you know, emotionally, spiritually, because if you're invested in a marriage that doesn't just turn off, Yeah, you, you, your feelings for a person don't turn off, right. your investment in their well-being doesn't just turn off. Right. Um, the only way to turn it off is to begin hating, mm. you know, but that's clearly not the right response mm-hmm. and, and one that not everybody's capable of anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and so he just talked about how he made the decision, he had to make the decision to stop praying for his ex hmm. once they were divorced. Wow. So up up to the point of being divorced, he prayed and he put it in God's hands. And yeah. that was the praying for the miracle. Yeah. And then the plug was pulled and he had to make the decision to stop praying um, because, because prayer is... If you pray for someone you care about that person, you are investing in them. You want to find out what is God, what God is doing in their life. You mm-hmm. are th- there's an element of pursuit in prayer. Yeah. Um and he knew that his marriage was over. And like that's it. Again, this is one of those things that's going to make people scrunch up their their eyebrows I'm scrunching and, and really, my eyebrows. The but, I'm thinking of pray your pray for your enemies. Love what your do you, enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute pray you. Pray for those who persecute you. But what do you do with that? I think that's so a kind of pursuit, I guess. I think there's different ways to pray. Yeah. Um, I think there's the active, like I'm going to sit down and I'm going to pray for this person by name mm-hmm. for all of the things I know they need prayer for. Yeah. Then there's the kind of prayer that is an, I would say maybe is an attitude of prayer where when they come to your mind, you hand them over to God. Yeah. So it's not hateful. In fact, that's a very 
think that's the best thing to do when they're, especially when it's outside your control. Right. Cause that and, totally and, makes and sense. And X is not in your control. Yeah. What they do with their lives, how they <clears throat> make their decisions. And if you try to control that, you will, you will be utterly miserable. Yeah. Um, so it's a handing over to God. And so there's a prayerful attitude of saying, essentially acknowledging God's sovereignty and your inability and saying this person and this situation is yours. Do you know, do with it what you will. Yeah. yeah. But not necessarily asking for anything in particular. Right. Because when you ask for something in particular, you then want to find out if that particular thing happens. <laughs> yeah. But if you hand them over to God, then it's up to God what happens. And it's still a um I think it's still a caring posture towards that person. Yeah. yeah. Not a hateful thing. Granted, there the Bible also says that, you know, vengeance is mine, which means you might be handing them over to God to like for the consequences of their actions. Right. But you might also be handing them over so God can change their hearts. Yeah. And and renew something in them. And it's not up to you. Yeah. I think that's a prayerful attitude. I this is not a hill I would die on. This is a thing that, that I'm, no, this that's, is a thing that I'm kind of processing. That makes total sense to me. The reason I was scrunching my eyes is only because of the sort of categorical way you're talking about right though the categories you're using because the reality is it's not like i'm praying for my ex-wife all the time especially right. as someone who's remarried like i'm that's the last thing on my mind these days right um but but then when i start to think about why it makes me feel guilty or i don't know but that's like the story of my life right yeah. is like i think a lot of christians grow up having these very idealistic ideas that are actually mm-hmm impossible to apply yeah. to your life and then you have to figure out where am i how have i misunderstood or mm-hmm. do i really need to be that radical and sometimes the answer is yes you need to be that radical and other times it's like no that's an unrealistic concept yeah and i think not i don't i want to be careful not to misuse the words of jesus mm-hmm. because that that's not a good thing to do but his prayer not my will but yours be done yeah is that's an appropriate prayer in that's this solid, case yeah. because you don't get to have a will mm-hmm. towards somebody you're not married to anymore. Yeah. If you want to, you shouldn't. And if you don't want to, you're probably in the right place. Right. But God's will ought to be something that you want for them because that's the best place for everybody to be. So if you want to take the stance of, I need to move on, but I want no part of hate, not my will, but yours be done, God, is is the, the thing I think that you can pray for that person. Yeah. And I don't think that that's that, un- I don't think it's an unrealistic radical thing. I think it's just, it's, it's a recurring thing as time, you know, and as time goes on, it becomes less poignant mm-hmm. um, because memories fade and distance is greater. The more you see the person, the more you have to pray it. Um, but just life does move on. Yeah. At least that's what I'm told. It's true. In your piece you wrote about how the whole experience has made God greater to you. Mm -hmm. What are some concrete ways in which that has been true? There's no good reason, no human explanation for the fact that to the very last day of my marriage, I still wanted it to be saved because it was Hmm. not a happy experience for quite a while leading Mm -hmm. up to the end. Um, And that is a testimony to God doing something in me that I can't take credit for. Hmm. It's also a... I think a glimpse into just faithfulness, his faithfulness, not mine. Yeah. Um, cause I never felt abandoned. I never lacked hope. I got really depressed at various points. Now depression for me looks different than for most people. Um, How so? It was not the kind of depression that like I couldn't function Yeah. because I would come to work and one person at work ever asked me, 
seems like something's okay? not quite right. Yeah. A lot of that's because of my persona. I'm not the most approachable person in the world. Um, I, I Barnabas is grumpy today. Weird. <laughs> I know. They're like, oh, he's just, he didn't get enough coffee. Like that's, <laughs> but so, but, but like, but a spiritual and just sort of a darkness mm-hmm. that, that I felt like I was sitting under. But even in that, I always knew that there was light and hope. And I, I always knew that if I, if I kept going one foot in front of the other, mm-hmm there would be there would be something else good better ahead i prayed for a miracle and i had hoped that what regardless of what happened god would be there so there was this faithfulness of presence yeah um and then i think the other thing is just marriage means more to me now that i'm not married yeah um i don't mean that it means more than it did when i was married but i don't value it less i think there are a lot of divorced people who resent the concept of marriage right because it went really badly they're just automatically cynical about it yeah yeah they hear marriage and i mean i think i don't think i'm cynical i think i'm realistic yeah i don't totally buy the happy marriage narrative that some people give um because i just wonder what's what's is there something going on like with individual marriages yeah particular particular marriages and i just kind of go i do that too i wonder if i'm reading into things sometimes yeah because of just because of yeah because of our experiences and that's what we do we take we take what we know yeah. and we project it onto others i have a whole thing against young marriage now that's right you yeah. know well no i mean it's and that's it's funny that uh, yeah I, I, we both got married at 22 23 mm-hmm. and uh i will have to try hard not to think that that might be a stupid idea <laughs> even though yes yeah millions of people have gotten married at that age and younger and had Great Health, marriage. healthy marriages for a very long time and died together at 80 yeah or you know and just just like worked it out if they went through hard times they worked it out yeah so my projection onto that is is inaccurate and wrong um but no just like as a as i tried hard to be faithful not faithful to my spouse like sexually but but like faithful to being what a husband ought to be mm-hmm. loving my wife as Christ loved the church, right. being faithful in that. A lot of that began, like those layers began to peel back. And what does it mean to be faithful mm-hmm. and love a spouse as Christ loves the church? What does it mean to, what is this picture of marriage that God intends? And what, what are the riches that, that can be there that I wasn't experiencing? Yeah. Um, and and so now when I look at other people's marriages, while I also I have this level of sort of low-grade cynicism about aspects, I also look at it and I go, they have an opportunity to experience something profound mm-hmm. um, because that's what marriage is yeah, or what ought to be. Yeah. Um, and so, so that, and again, I think that's an act of God because being protected from cynicism is usually not a human choice. That's God doing something in our hearts, at right. least for me, yes. because I gravitate towards cynicism. Yeah. Totally. Um, so, so to not be cynical about it, to me, I look at it and I go, that's, that is God revealing something to me that I didn't choose. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't go and decide not to be a cynical person. I just, I'm just not because the truth of what he showed me is, is abundantly clear. So how one of the one of the things that um hasn't happened since we last talked is is your career hasn't suddenly shifted in the way right. that often at least that i can tell in the way that will often happen to a person who works in ministry in some yeah. form and you we talked a lot about what you do and i'm curious um if if your ministry shifted bec- in in the sort of period before that 
because of it? Is there some way in which this has affected your calling? Yeah. That um that I, you can talk about? Cuz for so for, Yeah. So well, let me let me yeah, a couple things um come to mind. The first is I have been incredibly thankful for how so I work at I switched positions within the same company mm-hmm. since this all happened. But okay. that's but again, it was all within the same organization, yeah. same leadership. Um so I work I work for Lifeway Christian Resources mm-hmm. and I, I currently work for B and H publishers. Mm-hmm. Um so the the book publishing side, I oversee marketing for all of our academic books and then Bible software. Okay. That's that's my job. Um I have been so thankful for how the Lifeway leadership has has handled this situation. Mm. Um they have from my perspective, struck the right balance between learning what they need to know mm-hmm. in order to get to support me. Mm-hmm. So they, there was never a, th- I, my job never felt threatened. Yeah. Um, Lifeway has strong moral and biblical standards for how people should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they wanted to know like, where does this fall yeah. within that? But being divorced is not a thing that they look at and go, well, you're out yeah, or you're threatened or you're on behavioral probation or something. And they've, they've been supportive, supportive, you know, mm-hmm. the higher ups who know, they've also been very discreet. They don't blab, which right. in a, the Baptist world is, <laughs> it's weird. It, it's exceptional. Um, <laughs> so, so on that front, I have felt very supported mm-hmm. and like, they still see me as just as valuable to this organization as I was before any of this came to their attention on the more private side, I don't feel like divorce has hindered ministry or calling. Mm-hmm. I feel like the kind of marriage that I was in did hmm. because everything was isolated. Just like I was going to church on my own. Yeah. Everything I did built around mm. biblical truth was a thing I was doing on my own. Yeah. Um, and so there's a ceiling on it. There's there are certain things that you are empowered to do if you have a partner who is getting your back. Yep. Or I mean, some people serve together. Mm-hmm. Some people just support one another. Yeah. Um. But that isolation takes that away. So it was navigating the ability to to write or speak or podcast or be part of this ministry sphere, but knowing that there was I could only go so far and invest so deeply without somebody else saying we're in this together or I've got your back or, right. or, you know, or just that, that giving you that last nudge to say, Oh, you should totally go for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a thing. That's a very real thing. Um, so I would say that that has had an effect and that's going to be something that I figure out over time. You yeah. know, what is, what is different now? Um, I don't feel like I'm a dog off a leash. It's not like I can do whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. I'm, functionally, I'm probably doing less than I was before because being a halftime single dad is uh, taxing uh-huh. and takes a lot. You know, it, it demands a lot. Right. Um, but I'm also aware that there may be things that I can do that would have maybe been more challenging. Would have would have created conflict in the marriage that did exist. Mm-hmm. That 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 wouldn't happen now. But but that's all very hypothetical. But I think so. Those are sort of the two ways that in terms of career ministry calling. So the. The organizational side was very supportive, and um, I think anybody, I, th- I think other organizations could take notes because I know it's not like that for everybody. Um, but then on the personal side, just that that sort of invisible ceiling of I can only go so far on my own mm-hmm. before it becomes a thing that 
that pulls us further apart. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, last question. All right. Same as last time. If, but the very specific mm-hmm. timing here, yeah. if you could get into a time machine, <laughs> go back in time and talk to yourself like three months ago. Yeah. And when was it? November? Not three months ago. Well, we talked in October. We talked in October. So, like so five, back in October. Five, six months ago. What's, what would you say you've learned in that period of time from October to now? You've, you've really finished what was a long, turbulent mm-hmm. period of time where thing, it probably felt really hazy mm-hmm. for a while. And, and really what's happened in your life is a lot of things have been clarified. It seems like yeah, for for better and worse, or or for easier and harder is maybe a better way to put right. it. Yeah. So what what would you tell that person? Um, that's a really that's a that's a good question. Um, I think one of the things that I have learned is the is the value of uh, transparency, mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean that I'm going to be changed functionally and and just realistically who I am in terms of airing all of my personal life. But so. I, I view myself as a writer. Um, that's I, I don't mean that in a pretentious way, but it's a thing that I love to do. It's yeah. a way that I think God has given me to communicate. One of the things that I think I've learned is what needs to be poured into writing mm-hmm. differently. It's not just ideas. It's not just persuasion. There's an element of soul and transparency and self and heart hmm. in writing that that brings life to it. And I don't know if that's a universal truth or just for me. Yeah. Um, but it also means I, so I, I'm writing less because hmm. I can crank out idea pieces three times a week. Right. Um, but but if I want to write with soul, then there's there's a certain amount of sort of steeping in experience, reflection, feeling. Yeah. Uh, and and before that before that thing is sort of ready ready to, to be put out there. So that's a piece of it. Um, so I think that's a change of direction for me. Um, I could have very easily become the young Christian author who puts out a book every 14 to 16 months. And that's what I did. 2014, Hmm. 2015, Mm -hmm. early 2017. You were on, you felt like you were on a treadmill a little bit. Not on purpose. I just think just kind of how it happened. I think I think it would have been very easy if this interruption hadn't happened to just be like, all right, what's my next idea? <laughs> right. Yeah. And and I think that I don't know that that would have been a good direction for me. Okay. So to take a step back and say, all right, well, what's next? And I don't have an answer to that question. Yeah. Um, I don't have any th- projects in the works, and I'm content with that. Yeah. Because whatever I do next, I want it to be meaningful. Um, and so I think that's a thing is is sort of the the soul underneath things and. The transparency and honesty, reflection, mm-hmm. the, that that's a piece of it. Um, and I think, well, I'm going to say this. You can cut it out if you want. Okay. Departing a marriage that, or the death of a marriage where things are profoundly broken mm-hmm. does lead to some freedom yeah. that, that you might not have otherwise anticipated. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's a happy thing. Right. Quite the opposite. It's yeah. mostly miserable. Um, but there are freedoms from stresses and pains. Mm -hmm. Um, as the father of of two daughters, I feel like there are things that I can invest in my children now that I struggled to do before Hmm. because I was pulled in too many directions because there was, um, because of the the spiritual temperature of the home. And so I feel like I can be a, a better example and a better a better spiritual father to them mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. 
I think, and again, that's counterbalanced by the fact that I'm not with them all the time. Yeah. But in the time that I am with them, I think I can be better. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when you're in a relationship that's profoundly broken, you don't realize all the things you've lost. Right. The isolation of that Mm -hmm. spiritual isolation. So I'm, I'm in a church now that I'm, I'm sort of making my way into slowly, Mm -hmm. but I see the potential for a genuine community there. Yeah. And that's not a thing I felt free for free to be part of for a long time. Um, rediscovering how to be a good friend. Hmm. Um, because again, when you're in a relationship like that, emotional time, every bit of energy gets poured into that thing. Yep. And so friends are, uh, other relationships. They're there to support you. Yeah. And, and so you read, you don't reach out to them to be a good friend. You reach out to them because you need good friends. Exactly. Yeah. And good friends are, are available and present, but this, but now it can turn and there's a bit of rediscovery of, Oh, I actually do have a sense of humor and I do enjoy hanging out with people and I can be part of a good time and I can help them, Uh you know, if they, when, when that script is flipped and all of a sudden they're the ones in the hard place, I now get to be the good friend. Yeah. And so all of these are just examples of hopes and freedoms in, in, in real life that can be discovered mm-hmm. on the flip side of a thing that you hope never happens. Yeah, totally. It's like, it, again, with the death analogy, so when my dad, dad died of cancer, it had been mm-hmm. coming for a very long time. And for him included, I think it was a kind of it was a lot of things it was terrible it was painful yeah. it was sad it was a relief yeah to him and i think um all of us in a way in a yeah. sense i mean when you've been pouring caretaking into somebody yeah you regain that energy and that time when they're gone yeah that is i don't think that's a net positive because the loss no. of, because <laughs> yeah. the loss of that person is is huge right but there is a a, a reinvestment in other parts of life. I, the, a story, <clears throat> a story that comes to mind all the time for me is the story of, um, David and Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. Um, so David has adultery with Bathsheba. Yeah. She gets pregnant. Yeah. David kills her husband mm-hmm. to marry her and the infant dies, but yeah. is ill for a period of time before he dies. And David spends the entire time, the baby's ill, weeping, fasting, praying, not bathing, just falling apart. And then when the baby dies, he gets up and he eats something and he pulls himself together and he goes about life. And I, and it's not in a heartless way because his statement is basically like, I put it all before God mm-hmm. and God, God made the decision that God made. Yeah. And so now, now life will be lived. <laughs> and so it's, that's a bit fatalistic, but I think, <laughs> but I think it's also, there, there's an element of just sort of realistic hopefulness in that, in that. Yeah, it's it it sucks. Yeah. It hurts. But you get up and you eat something and you bathe and you go about life and you don't forget your loss and you don't stop feeling pain, but there is life to be lived and you you figure out how to live it and to live it as well as you can with character and faith and relationship and community and and all of those things that make life vibrant. You've been listening to the calling Barnabas Piper is the author of The Curious Christian and uh, the host of the Heavy Rant Podcast. He also writes for a site called The Blazing Center. Go check those things out. They're cool. Uh, You can follow him on Twitter at at Barnabas Piper. 
Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. Tell us how it impacted you, all of that stuff. We'll read it on the air. The Calling is produced by Jonathan Clausen. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.